Welcome to the Filmed Live Musicals Podcast, a podcast about stage musicals that have been legally filmed and publicly distributed. The Filmed Live Musicals website contains information on nearly 200 musicals that have been captured live. Check it out at filmedlivemusicals.com. And now, on with the show. Welcome to episode 24 of the Filmed Live Musicals podcast. I'm your host, Louisa Lyons, and joining me today is American songwriter Benjamin Scheuer. Benjamin composed and performed in the autobiographical solo musical The Lion, which tells the turbulent story of his family and his own brush with mortality, with his supporting cast of six guitars. Benjamin won multiple awards, including a Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Solo Performance and an Off-West End Award for Best New Musical. The Lion was filmed live at Geffen Playhouse in 2017 and is now available to stream on Broadway HD. Benjamin recently won the 2021 Kleban Prize for Lyrics and is also a published author of two children's books, 100 Feet Tall and Hibernate With Me. Welcome, Benjamin. Thank you so much for having me on the program, Louisa. It's my pleasure. So to start off with, what made you fall in love with musical theater? I saw the 1991 production on Broadway of Guys and Dolls with Peter Gallagher playing Sky Masterson and Nathan Lane playing Nathan Detroit. And my father took me and my family to the performance. And I was I was completely taken by the entire experience. I, I thought Sky was the coolest person I'd ever seen. And uh, I thought I wanted to be just like him. But in hindsight, <laughs> it turns out I wanted to be just like Frank Lesser, who wrote the show. What led you to that journey of discovering Frank Lesser? Well, he, the the songs in Guys and Dolls were extraordinary for many reasons. One particularly was that the lyric, each lyric in each song follows the natural cadence melodically of what the words would would be. And here's here's what I here's what I mean. The lyric when you see a guy reach for stars in the sky, you can bet that he's doing it for some doll. If you were to speak those words, when you see a guy reach for stars in the sky, you can bet that he's doing it for some doll. The, the words themselves have a natural melodic cadence. And Frank Lesser, as a songwriter, had an extremely sensitive ear to the natural melodic cadence of words. And his melodies would very often follow those cadences. So the, re- the result of this is when characters sing, it sounds the same way it does when they're talking. So singing didn't feel disconnected from talking. It felt like a heightened version of the characters talking. A- and so it drove the plot more. It made the characters more clear. It made the dramatic tension higher. It made the story work together better. And I, I loved this type of songwriting and it got me really excited to try it myself. Was it something that you studied formally as a young person or is this something that you kind of came to realize on your own? I've studied songwriting formally, but not until, well, not until I was a little bit older. I, I wrote, I wrote my first piece of theater musical theater when I was 16. I was at school in England and we had a drama festival that was, our drama department was led by Simon Dormandy. He's a wonderful British director. And uh, I was dared by Simon Dormandy at this English boarding school where I was a new student to try and write a rock opera. Now I'd grown up playing guitar and playing piano and, and I'd written songs for, for fun 
I'd never taken to writing anything on a sort of larger scale. And I'd only ever seen Broadway musicals. I'd never seen a funky downtown show with a cast of two accompanied by a piano. So in my extraordinary naivety, I thought I would write a musical with a cast of 20 and an orchestra <laughs> of 11. Just for your and first show, an easy my, foray into <laughs> That's That's absolutely right. And, and, and so my teachers encouraged this, and I put the show up on stage, and I played guitar in the pit, and my, my family came to see the show. And Prince William took tickets. He ushed my show. Uh, so when my grandmother, who's still who's still alive, is a hundred years old, turned up, uh, she had her ticket taken by Prince William, and uh, <laughs> and and after the show, I mean, I thought, well, this this seems like the job that I want to have. I like creating worlds. I like telling stories, and uh, I went to Harvard as an undergraduate and wrote the freshman musical my first year, and then wrote another musical, and would go back and forth really between making musicals and making records. And I was always interested in what I could learn from a record and apply to a piece of theater and what I could learn from a piece of theater and apply to a record. Uh, Simple things like a continuous narrative from the beginning to the middle to the end of the piece. What, What larger story is being told? What musical and lyrical motifs help drive the piece? In a piece of theater, you, your audience promises to sit down and shut up for the entire time. And in return, the makers of, and, and performers of the show promise, at least try to promise, to make the entire thing entertaining the entire time. Whereas with a record, uh, if there's 10 songs on it and there's five songs that are good, like you've got a pretty good record. But my thinking was, well, but if you have a show and there's 10 songs in it and nine of them are good, then you have one problem. Hmm. So, so what if, what if I applied to show making what I applied to records, which is anything that's fat, anything that's boring, anything that's unconvincing, get rid of it. And, and then in thinking about how do I approach a show, I thought, okay, well, what are the singles? Like it, the show sh- shouldn't just live in the theater, but it should live beyond the theater. There should be a record that's cool. Each song should be able to stand on its own. You should make a music video for each song. And so when it when it came time to making the lion, I realize I'm jumping ahead here, but just in sort of in broad strokes, when it came time to making the lion, uh, I recorded a number of the songs in advance of the show going up on stage, and I made some music videos for them. And we put the singles into the world, we put the videos into the world, and they were all connected to this central property. So this is all by way of saying, uh, as a young person, I was interested in both theater and records. And as I became sort of more and more professional, I tried to figure out which pieces of which I could put together to make something more interesting. Mm. Oh, that's so fascinating. I'm curious about this like blending of, blurring of lines rather, between like music and record making in a kind of pop or rock sense and theater. And it's especially interesting with like the music videos that you've recently and earlier that you seem to see it as all part of the same world rather than like, this is a music video that's distinct from a live theater piece that's distinct from my record. It's it's all part of the same world. I think of the, 
the properties as radial rather than as iterative. And here's what I mean. With The Lion, uh, when when I perform the show, or I should even say when the show is being performed, it's one person on stage with acoustic guitars for most of the show. And there's a set, and there's costumes, and there's a story. Okay, so on the record, there's no set, there's no costumes. So how do you put set into a record? How do you put costumes into a record? How do you put lights into a record? Okay, well, when you have a show, you have a theater director. Great. So when you have a record, you have a record producer. And when I was working on The Lion, my director was Sean Daniels. And his job was to do whatever he wanted with the material that I'd written. That's a director's job. Trust your director, do whatever you want. When I made the record Songs from the Lion, I hired a record producer, Jeff Crayley, and his job, big surprise, was to do anything that he wanted with the material. Now, we put the songs in the record in a different order. We changed some of the lyrics. We we cut some material. We added some new material, and we brought in a band. Because there's no lights on a record, there's no set on a record, there's no costumes on a record, but maybe you've got a drummer, maybe you've got a bass player, maybe you've got a second guitar player, maybe you've got a backing vocalist. Uh, records operate differently than, uh, than shows. So rather than trying to kind of like iterate the show onto a record and then to make a music video, stick a camera in the back of your theater, which ultimately ends up looking like a diluted version of a diluted version of the thing, when it comes came time to making uh, radial properties, as in properties that sort of connect to the central hub, that is the lion. After making a, hiring a record producer to produce songs like Cookie Tin Banjo or Weather the Storm or Cure or The Lion, I hired the uh, film director, Peter Bainton, to make some music videos for these pieces. And the first music video Pete and I made together was for the title track was for the show uh, for the song the lion and this is even before the sh- the show the lion existed i knew it was going to exist and i thought it would be cool to lead with a music video so pete heard this song and thought okay well i'm going to tell the story using cardboard so pete and i made a cardboard cutout stop motion music video and when the lion played its first outing, it was before it was even called the lion. The show was called the bridge and it opened at the Edinburgh fringe festival in the summer of 2013. Uh, in addition to getting to Edinburgh with my guitars, I got to Edinburgh with a track that was on the radio and an animated music video that had by this point won some prizes at animated film festivals. So mm. I was approaching the piece and di- and audience members in all different ways. You like animation? Cool. Check this out. Do you like pop music? Cool. Check this out. Do you like storytelling? Check this out. Do you like theater? Check this out. Uh, and and it's it seems obvious to me to connect one sort of artistic property to a number of different radial properties through different media, then like dilute your thing and dilute the version that's diluted and dilute the version that's diluted. So, and it also it gives me a great opportunity to work with cool artists. I love working with Peter Bainton, the director. I love working with Jeff Crayley, the record maker, because I like making movies and I, I like making records as much as I love working with Sean Daniels, the theater director and making theater. 
I, and that's so smart because a lot of uh, other people I've talked to um, who have filmed live musicals, they talk about the need to have it on multiple platforms in order to get any traction. So it's so smart even, you know, to go to Edinburgh to have all these different ways for people to access it and a way to promote it as well because you're not just standing in, in Edinburgh with your flyers <laughs> amongst the thousands of other <laughs> actors and performers trying to plug your show. There's There's other means of getting in. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, in Edinburgh, I'm, I'm sure your listeners are, are familiar, but for, for those who aren't, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in Edinburgh, Scotland is the biggest theater festival in the world, and there's 2,500 shows. At least when I was there in 2013, there were 2,500 shows. And, uh, and it's great because not only did I perform it every night in a little black box theater mm-hmm. to to you know what was like 30 people i got to go and see all other you know, other shows the rest of the day so for the hour and a half that i was working i was doing the show and then the rest of the time i would go and see other people's shows and and being a part of the theater community and the storytelling community and the music making community is is one of my great joys and and it's absolutely necessary i mean even though the lion is a one-person show it did not get made in a bubble i had probably a hundred people who, who I could name, who helped me make it, fellow songwriters, fellow playwrights, uh, lighting people, sound people, record pe- chefs, you know, people who just make stuff. We're like, well, here's, here's how to make your thing good. And then also the, the open mic community in Greenwich Village, New York City, where I, where I was living when I was writing The Lion. Uh, because the great thing about an open mic is you turn up with your guitar or your story or whatever, and you have five minutes to do whatever you want to do on stage. And you can tell when your five minutes is not entertaining people because they will get up and go get a cup of coffee or go pee or start talking to other people. <laughs> check their phones. And, it, and check their phones. And it's a really gr- it's it's a great lesson because that means, great, go home and rewrite your thing. Rewrite it such that everybody pays attention the entire time because that's what you want. You want everybody to be entertained. Like we're entertainers. So how can my, the five minutes when I have people's attention really be worth their time? Mm-hmm. And and I can see when it's not and then my job is to fix it so it is. So I want to rewind a little bit. Um, you were diagnosed in 2010, is that right? I was diagnosed with uh, stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer. It's a uh, type of cancer that originates in the lymph nodes. Mm-hmm. I was 28 years old living in New York City. And uh, I did, uh, the, the way I, I got found, the way my cancer was found was I was running through Grand Central Station on a wet December day. Uh, I was carrying a guitar case and I slipped and fell on the train station platform. And I spent the next day in bed, banged up and and bruised. And the following day I went to my doctor and they ran some tests and they ran some more tests and then they ran a a lot of tests and I'd broken my pelvis in four places. And the reason I'd broken my pelvis is because I had what's known as lytic lesions in my pelvis, which basically means the bones were being eaten by something and were weakened. And so when I fell, they fractured. And the thing that had weakened them was cancer, which was in my bones and in my my lungs and spine. And just basically from my neck to my knees was cancer. So I did six months of chemotherapy. And my doctor said to me, so this was in New York. It was at a, a Cornell New York hospital on 72nd Street where I got my chemotherapy on the east side. 
And my doctor was like, look, Ben, like probably you'll be fine. You'll do this six month of chemotherapy. You'll have like a terrible time and, and you'll be fine at the end of it. Very likely you'll get better on the inside. You'll look worse on the outside. Hmm. I thought that's interesting. Uh, get better on the inside, look worse on the outside. I like the visual contradiction of this idea. And so I asked my friend, Raya Lerner, who's a, pro- a professional photographer. She was teaching photography at the International Center of Photography in New York at ICP. I asked Raya if she would photograph me once a week during my chemotherapy to capture this visual contradiction of get better on the inside, look worse on the outside. And we didn't know, Raya and I, what these photos would be for. Uh, we weren't entirely certain how these photos would end. But we wanted to make work and have a project. And so that's what we did. Mariah photographed me once a week through my chemotherapy. And I kept a journal through chemotherapy uh, from December 2010 through uh, July 2011. So you and I are recording this uh, today in 2021 on the 7th of July. Uh, The the 11th of July this year is my 10-year cancer-free anniversary. Amazing. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was 10 years ago this week that I was told by my doctor that I was cured of cancer, that my chemotherapy, uh, had been successful. And I did, I had four different chemotherapeutic chemicals, adriamycin, bleomycin, vinblastin, and dicarbazine. I mentioned all four of those chemicals in the, in the show. And you can always tell during that lyric, who is either a a cancer survivor or an oncologist by looking around. And if somebody recognizes the names of those four drugs, you know what's going on. Yeah. Anyhow, when I started performing the, sh- the show, The Lion, Raya and I had this collection of photographs and text from my journalism. We put it together into a book called Between Two Spaces, mm-hmm. uh, photographs alongside, alongside excerpts of these journals. And we sold this book at performances of the lion and i gave my proceeds to the leukemia lymphoma society and it was a real lesson and like sometimes you make work and you don't know what it's for why you're making it but the the that answer will come later like make the work now and you know you the answer for why you made it will perhaps turn up at a later date so make work make work make work i love that that desire and like innate like a uh, force to keep creating even at the most like one of the hardest times of your life and when you're going through debilitating chemo having been through it myself I I know how ravishing it can be on your body and I I'm in awe that you were able to keep doing something through all of that what uh what type of cancer did you have or I do had you leukemia have? Did yeah. past past tense and funnily my my anniversary is also coming up uh, at the end of July. Um, it will be seven years since I was diagnosed. Congratulations! So, thank you. That's great. That's great, Louisa. What it, what kind of chemo did you do? Um, I don't remember the names of it. Um, I had three different rounds. Uh, the first uh, one of them was the type where um, you have to shower twice a day, which with a pick line is horrible. <laughs> it's, I hated every minute of that. And I also had radiation therapy and a stem cell transplant. All right. Yeah. All right. And when when you talk about bone marrow biopsies in the show, it's like, yep, 
know that pain all too well. <laughs> yeah, that that's the most seared into my mind moment mm-hmm. of my life, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's the what is the the lyric in the show? They biopsy my marrow, it's searing blinding, blinding pain. pain. Yeah. It was an interesting experience as a writer um to have five syllables searing blinding pain i had five syllables to to describe the worst experience of my life and 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 it was an interesting exercise in in concision and in leaving things out (laughs) and that's something i think songwriters often have to do you have to take something huge and you have five syllables to describe it, and that's it. And so you got to pick the best five syllables. And and it's really something I, I learned a lot about songwriting from Raya, the photographer who I worked with. Because I asked her, I was like, what makes a good photo, Raya? And she's like, oh, mm. well, you aim your camera at something, but also you're choosing to not aim your camera at literally everything else. So it's mostly about leaving stuff out. There's harmony and dissonance. There's lightness and darkness. There's sort of focus, and there's blurriness. And uh, your photo should be about one thing. And what the focus is, is not necessarily what your photo is about. Hmm. And I was like, huh, that sounds a lot like songwriting. And she was like, yeah, of course. Like, obviously, it's all the same. And so searing, blinding pain was, uh, I liked searing is you know heat and cooking and change over time blinding is a a different sense it's visual but the fact that a feeling could be blinding and a feeling from heat could take away a sense i liked the contradiction and sort of overlap of senses because you know pain at a certain point becomes a sensory overload it just kind of stops the mind from functioning and so that that was my songwriting attempt to to capture to capture that. And it was hard it was hard to pick those words. I think I went through a lot of options. Mm-hmm. I had my copy of Roger's Thesaurus with me and like was like, "All right, let's be really practical." Like what you know, I just wrote down 100 words that it was like. Cuz it is like, you know, on any different day, Louise, I imagine like what's a bone marrow biopsy like? We could write an entire book on that. Yeah. Five seconds, right? Yeah. Having having done like I've lost count. I think I got to like 17 of them by the end of my treatment. And like I, I will tell you by the last one I could sing through it. <laughs> wow. What did the, you sing? <laughs> something musical theater, probably Mary Poppins or something. <laughs> but the first one, I yeah, it was torture. I mean, I when I've spoken to doctors since, I'm like, if there's anything you can do to treat blood cancer please take away bone marrow biopsies like find a replacement for that treatment because it's it's hell <laughs> yeah i that is yeah that is true and then this how do we take well interesting you sang through it so do you recall what singing through it did to your mind and body it it um it helped me like not feel it it helped me dis- it's just it was a distraction yeah, and I mean, music really can, and specifically song, it can change the way we feel if we sing a song or if we listen to a song. And that, that's something that I find extremely powerful as a, as a maker of songs, that I realize I am tasked 
with an opportunity to affect how people feel. And I think of Yip Harburg, who wrote Somewhere Over the Rainbow, and he was like, right, so music is how people feel, and words are how people think, and song allows us to feel our thoughts and think our feelings. And, and it's an extremely powerful idea that song can transport us. It can take us away from pain. It can take us away from sadness. It can, it can heighten emotion. It can clarify emotion. And and for me, writing a song can often help understand something. And by understanding it where I had no control over it, I can now regain some sense of control over it. And so mm. by writing about cancer, the thing that had control over me, I could suddenly have control over cancer. And thus, by writing songs, I became an alchemist. Mm. And was that what drove you to write The Lion? Was it the processing of it or it was just this, that, you know, continual desire to create? Writing the Lion was a very active decision to take control over elements of my life that I, I felt had taken control over me. Uh, my father died when I was 14 and I had never f- face on confronted my own feelings around his death and my own resentment and anger at him for dying and my own shame and feeling like I had in some way contributed to his death or not done enough to be a good son while he was alive, while he was ill. Um, I mean, I was a little boy and like my father had a brain aneurysm. My, my behavior had nothing to do with this as a kid, but when you're four, you know, 13, you think the world result revolves around you. Anyhow, in, in writing the lion, I, I had to actively kind of make peace with my the relationship I had with my dad and really make peace with myself. And in a really in a really practical sense, I was cancer-free, newly single. I'd broken up with a partner just before I was diagnosed. Living in New York City, and the only thing I had to talk about was cancer. I mean, like, so I put a pause in this. I, I went to a, a wedding not long ago sort of the first wedding I'd been to since this pandemic hit the world 17 months ago. And at the wedding, it was extremely awkward for anybody to talk to anybody because all we had to talk about was the pandemic. It's like the only thing anybody had to talk about. And nobody wanted to talk about the pandemic. Similarly, when I finished cancer, if I were to go on a date or meet somebody new, what have you been doing, Ben? They'd say to me, so what have you been up to? And, you know, cancer, 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 cancer was my answer. Mm-hmm. And then they would either run away or be like uncomfortably interested in my sort of superhero martyrdom, which I didn't believe. And I didn't like that either. Mm. So going to open mics was really a venue where I could pour out my distilled heartache and experience in five minutes and everyone would clap, 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 clap. And then the next person would go up. So it was this sort of group community therapy that allowed me, well, first of all, it was something to do. I love playing guitar and singing. <laughs> and and it gave me an outlet where I could process what had happened to me. And I mean, the first song I wrote about my time going through cancer was the title track in the show is the song, The Lion. And it's as much influenced by Frank Lesser, who wrote Guys and Dolls, as it is Marshall Mathers, you know, better known as Eminem. I'm a big fan of hip hop and 
uh, Eminem is a hero of mine, uh, lyrically as you know, Eddie Van Halen is guitaristically, uh, Eddie Van Halen, who just died last October. God, that really, that really broke me up anyway. And so the song, the lion was sort of me doing my best to to Marshall Mathers style lyrics at the risk of getting burned, I tried to guide the pride to learn to find their own ideas of fire and fan the flame. With other stuff to do and see, they left the music all to me. The things that made us lions were not the same. Like that—that's that's me taking a page out of out of Marshall Mathers' playbook. But you pair it with acoustic guitar, suddenly it sounds like folk music, and you tell a story with it, and then suddenly it sounds like musical theater. And so, I was really drawing from a number of different influences, all for the purposes of trying to kind of find find my way in the world and make my way back into life and i think also probably the lion is like a huge personal ad you know i was <laughs> single and kind of ashamed of some of the experiences that i had and ashamed of but my body had let me down hmm. and when you're single and you know young you want your body to be this successful, sexy thing. And my body had been this thing that I felt had totally let me down. And I mean, the writer Sulaika Jawad has written a lot about young, young people with cancer and sexuality and how they overlap in these things in a, in a really beautiful mm. way. And she's just published a book called Between Two Kingdoms, which I recommend to the world. I subbed my, like laughed, subbed my way through that book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's, uh, she's, she's great. She's wonderful. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, what was the? Uh, I was. I had a, a larger, a larger point of goodness. The personal me, I, ad, I, I, the lion. Oh yeah, the lion was. It was really a, a a personal ad, and and Shana Taub, another songwriter who I, who I really love, dared me to write one true couplet of what cancer was like. When I told her, I told Shana I wanted to work on the show. She's like, write one true couplet, and so I wrote. Now there's blood and shit pooling round my toes as I unclog my bowels with the shower hose. And I was so sure that if I shared this line with anybody, the world would explode, that nobody would want to talk to me. Nobody would want to be my friend. Nobody would want to go on a date with me or have sex with me or nobody would think I was cool. And with extraordinary trepidation, I showed this couplet to my friend Shayna. And she was like, yeah, cool. That's a good couplet. And I read another one. And <laughs> yes, <Shana>. and the <laughs> thing, yeah, she's great. She's, she's super. And the thing I found when I performed the show and it had this line in it, it gave other people permission, people who were listening, it gave them permission to understand that the shame they had around their own lives and their own bodies was not uniquely theirs that everybody that they're not alone that we're not alone and that it's like it it maybe to maybe to ease the burden of their shame a little bit and be like hey look this happened to me too it's okay like it's still cool we're still cool and that maybe self-acceptance is more powerful than shame and thank you shana for uh for daring me to do that uh i also had a songwriting teacher uh, named Laurie White. Uh, we lost Laurie to cancer a few years ago. But when I studied with Laurie at the Johnny Mercer songwriting workshop uh, in Northwestern in 2010, this is before I was diagnosed with cancer. And the advice that Laurie gave me about songwriting was this. You want to write a good song, she said, write something you don't want other people to know about you. 
You want to write a great song? Write what you don't want to know about yourself. Mm. Wise words, Laurie. Wise mm. words. And, oh, that's that's so profound. And you can see so much of that in The Lion, that you you took those words to heart. <laughs> I really did. I really did. And and it's hard to do that, man. Like, truly, any anybody who's listening, songwriter or otherwise, take out a piece of paper and a pen and write down something you don't want to know about yourself. Like, really, do it. And, you know, and burn it later if you want. You don't have to show it to anybody. <laughs> but see what it's like. The first time you do it, it is the most horrifying thing you'll ever do. It's terrifying. But if you do it every day, twice a day, it just becomes your job. And you also run out of stuff. And you also realize that if you ever do show it to other people, it's not as big a deal to them as it is to you because they have other stuff. And that's the stuff that makes them feel more comfortable as audience members hearing because it makes them feel like you're not fronting. You're telling the truth. Like we have a really good detector of when somebody wants something from us. Like anybody's ever been in New York City, right? You're walking down the street. When somebody wants something from you a block away, you can tell, you can tell. You can tell we're good at that. We have a sense of it. And when somebody in their song wants you to think that they're cool or they have it all together, like, man, we can tell. But if somebody's just telling you the truth as best they can, and maybe they're getting it wrong and they're not, but like they're really trying, like you can tell. Absolutely. Uh, so you can you can write it down on a piece of paper, you can burn it, or you can take it to Edinburgh and then transfer it to uh, to um, city center stage two. <laughs> yep, that's right. <laughs> it was uh, seven years ago uh, this summer in 2014 that the Lion opened uh, at Manhattan Theater Club uh, at City Center 54th Street, I guess it was. And from the Edinburgh run, we'd cut some songs. We'd rewritten some songs. I'd added, I don't know, a a handful of new songs, uh, a bunch of new guitars. Uh, I had um, my two main guitars in the show were built by a company called Froggy Bottom, based in Vermont. Uh, And Froggy Bottom was started 51 years ago by Michael Millard, who is one of the great living guitar builders. And yeah, the show opened in, uh, in summer 2014 and my mother came to see it opening night and she hadn't, se- she'd seen it in Edinburgh. She hadn't seen any of the early, uh, revisions huh. and, and, uh, it, it became a hit. It was a hit and we sold out. I think we sold out the Manhattan theater club run and I, the New York Times gave it a lovely review. And so I live in London now. And here in London, there's a number of newspapers. But of course, if you open in New York City, the one review that really mattered then was the New York Times. And um, Charles Isherwood uh, gave the show a, a lovely, lovely review. And then the, um, and later, the New York Times, we premiered the music video for the song Cure uh, in the New York Times health page. Mm. And that's another Peter Bainton directed video. Uh, but after, after the show opened in, in New York, yeah, it went to London and played at the St. James theater and won the award for, um, for best new musical, uh, in the off West end awards. And my, my, the woman who's now my wife and the mm-hmm. mother of, my, <laughs> we, we have a little, we have a little girl. Uh, she came to see the show and in, in London, we'd met at the British animation awards uh, earlier that year where the lion was playing in competition and where the animated television program 
that my wife worked for had, had won a prize. And so her name is Jemima, Jemima Williams. And Jemima and I met at the party at the British Animation Awards. And uh, so all thanks to the song, The Lion. And then she came to see the show and we went on a date. And so The Lion, I guess as a big personal ad, it, it really did seem to to work out. Because, you know, <laughs> I got to meet, meet the, the love of my the, life. She knew the glory. She knew the the terrible, the the hard part of your life. And you kind of didn't have to go over that, right? Like she, she knew, That's she true. understood it already. <laughs> That's true though. I mean, of course the lion is a show and it, I do play a character named Ben and, and yeah, it's very tightly based on me in my real life, but Benjamin Scheuer, the person and Ben, the character and the lion are different. And whenever what really happened was not interesting or not entertaining, not worthy of a theater show, we change it. I mean, something you might, you know, viewers who can watch the show on Broadway HD would notice is in the show, the character Ben has no friends. Hmm. My, uh, the brothers, Adam and Simon, who are my real brothers, play the role of all things friends would play the roles in in the show. It was simply too complicated to have other characters. Um, at the end of the show, my character goes to a golden castle town, goes to Italy by himself. That's not what happened in real life. In real life, I went with my brothers and I went with my mother, but I played an early draft of the song golden castle town to my brother, Simon, uh, about driving around Italy with my family. And Simon was like, your idea of heaven is being in a car with mom. <laughs> and this was a good note. And Simon's a wonderful songwriter. And and so I mean I I changed it so my character went to Italy by by myself. So mm. when my wife and I met, yeah, she had seen my show and seen my, you know, my autobiographical piece. It uh, she, it, it was important for me to make sure she knew that like it was highly stylized. And you know, there's a lot there's a lot more just like we talked about with Raya and her camera. Like we pointed the show at a very specific place, but we're, we, there's a lot of places we didn't point it that were also real. Not at absolutely everything. I'm curious what it was like, even with the show being stylized and uh, bending of the truth, how your mom reacted to seeing it. I think it was very emotional for her. Uh, and I think it was it was hard for her to see her son go through cancer on stage. Like she didn't want to see that, you know. I mean, I she lived it already. Yeah, she lived and and seeing her husband die on stage, my father. You know, she lived that already. So I think it was really hard for her to see. Also, in the show, I talked a lot about the challenge, the challenges that my father and I had in our relationship. You know, for the most part, we got along great. But of course, uh, when somebody dies memory can be a strange magnifier memory memory will magnify things that perhaps weren't magnified when they happened and so you know 99 times out of 10 uh, out of 100 i got along with my dad but the one out of 100 times i didn't were the times i remembered so my memory and the memories i chose to share about me and my father uh were not what my mother remembered now, of course you know everybody remembers things differently and we trauma and grief we we process differently so i think it was both hard for my mother to see me going through these these tough things but also hard to realize that like different people experience trauma differently mm -hmm. oh absolutely yeah 
even, you know, I imagine your brothers have a very different experience of your father's death than you do, because even siblings growing up in the exact same house can have wildly different experiences of the same event. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, so maybe, maybe my brothers will each write their own one person shows and my mother will, you know, write her, uh, well, she joked that she's going to do her one-woman dance show. My mother, my mother doesn't dance, by the way. So, no. Even better. All the more reason to do it. <laughs> to do a one-woman dance show. Yeah, we're yeah. waiting for you, mom. I'm here for it. <laughs> right, so the you. the show also you toured all around the United States. Uh, it was 500 performances around the U.S. Were there any performances that stood out to you? Anything that was memorable or special? Yeah, there were some memorable performances. Somebody died in a performance I gave. Uh, some an audience, <laughs> an audience member, uh, at at the end of the show, uh, the show closes with the song called "Cookie Tin Banjo." It's a reprise of the opening number. Uh, at the end of "Cookie Tin Banjo," somebody stood up, wobbled, sat back down, and then I saw a crowd of people around them. And um, and I heard later that this person had uh, had not opened their eyes again, and the way the way I heard it was the the man's widow had gotten this sort of automated email from the theater like, "Hey, how did you like the show?" And she, she'd in her shock of her husband suddenly dying, had filled in the survey and was like, "This show." should come with an emotional warning it killed my husband oh, and God. and i heard about this i'm laughing only because i'm just it, i don't know what else to do i heard about this through uh my director told me and he was like just to be clear ben like your acting did not kill this person you are you are not a good enough act. You're in fact, you're not a good actor. You're not a, like you're, you're a great guitar player. You're not a good actor. You didn't kill this person with your guitar playing. You didn't kill this person with your acting. Like you, it, these two things happen, your show and this person dying happened co un very, very unfortunately, coincidentally, like they were not causal. This wasn't your fault. And at the time I think I was like, Oh, of course I know that, but it, I'm really, really glad that Sean Daniels, this wonderful director of mine, told me that I didn't kill this audience member because I was really worried. Because like once every 10 shows or so, it, there, there's a section in the show that you mentioned earlier, Louisa, where I, I named the chemotherapeutic drugs. Maybe one out of every 10 shows, someone would pass out. And so I had to train oh. myself. Like Part of my gig became learning to keep an eye on the audience. And when that happened have a plan in place to stop the show and ask for this person to be brought orange juice and ask gently if there's a medical professional in the house and, and sort of keep the audience calm and know if I could restart the show again and that sort of thing. It, it became a weird part of the job was not That's just being watched, yeah, but, but watching the audience and keeping keeping an eye and an ear on them because after all they're trusting me to take them on this this trip for 64 minutes and 40 seconds mm. and and they'll listen to me when i talk into the microphone so i, I need to be thoughtful about anything i say into the microphone wow and so 
do you know if those people were themselves survivors or family members of like I guess I don't know if you ever found out. I, I I mean, every now and again, someone would talk to me after the show, having passed out, and tell me what their story was. I think uh, oftentimes I didn't speak with them. Perhaps they, you know, their people are private. They don't want to. Yeah. I think they're also kind of embarrassed if somebody passes out in a show. You feel like everybody's looking at you. You don't want to. Yeah. But I mean, I like I had people walk out before the show was done. Maybe people didn't like the show. But the thing that like they forget is. I can just stop the show and chat with them. Hmm. So once someone was walking out before the show was over and I was like, I mean, it's not over yet, lady. Like, I mean, I'll play out. And so I played her basically exit music. Um, <laughs> you know, like sometimes people's phones go off or like somebody be checking their email and like they, they're not used to the fact that I can be like, Hey dude, you're totally checking. Your, like I can see you. And Ben Stanton did the lights for this show. And one thing he did not decide to add in the lighting was a big blue light on your big dumb head. So like, put your phone away. You know, people don't expect that the show is going to stop and single them out. But yeah. I can do that as a performer. Yes, and, Patty you know, LaPonem. <laughs> yeah, right. And like, I, I don't, I, I never want to antagonize my audience. But, you know, if somebody's really like, creating bad bad vibes like i can mess with them a little bit <laughs> yeah that's that is your privilege as the performer yeah, it's, it's yeah. your space at that point oh wow I, I was not expecting that poor person to pass away during your show that was no. quite unexpected um so you got to geffen playhouse at the end of that tour and yeah. what led to the decision to film the show the Kevin Playhouse had been doing work to film some of their shows. They had the infrastructure in place, mm-hmm. and it's a really well done, uh, well done film. I'm really, they put some real money into it, and I think it just it looks great. I think we filled filmed six or seven performances, two of which we did without audiences, uh, so the cameras could be on the stage. And I mean, the microphones in the show are really beautiful studio microphones, so it sounds great. It looks great, and. And it's great to have it's great to have a record of it. Um, I, I don't plan on performing the Lion again, but uh, and nobody knows this yet, so I might as might as well say it here. Um, the Lion is going to open with a new performer playing Ben in uh, in London in 2022. Oh, that's so cool! So it's it's is it going to be licensed? Is it going to be? I mean, licensed not not licensed so much as a director approached me and was like, Hey, I'd like to do this show. Uh, oh. and I said, if you want to direct it, if you can find somebody who will do it, you, I don't, I don't care where you set it. I don't care who this person is. I, I don't care anything. So long as they can play it at that point, you can do whatever you want. And they found, they found a wonderful performer. Uh, and the show is going to, start again in London in 2022 and hopefully make its way back to the United States and perhaps elsewhere as well. And, you know, stay tuned friends. Oh, that is super cool. That's how special is that to have your story go on beyond you doing it? I think it's going to be really interesting to see as a, as a writer, Uh, writer Benjamin Scheuer is really curious to, to see what it's like with somebody else playing the character Ben. Yes. And, and I will say there's been a bootleg performance of the lion done translated into Spanish, totally without my knowledge and put up on stage in Bogota, Colombia. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and I got wind of it and 
I was I, first of all, I was mostly just really, really flattered because you know, <laughs> I love that people are into it, and it's really hard to learn. Like the guitar playing, the the guitar parts are really hard, and they really did a great job. And so mostly I was flattered, but part of me was also like, guys, come on, like you can't just this is my work, please. <laughs> yeah, like write to, if you write to me, I can be helpful. Like I yeah. would be useful. <laughs> I, huh. And and so we'll figure something out. I'd love for them to do it again, maybe a little more officially in Spanish. You know. Oh, that's cool. Do you think uh, is it a resu- is it a direct result of having it available on Broadway HD? Oh yeah, I mean I'm sure they rented it and just like wrote down the words and like that's they must have watched it you know so many times to learn those guitar parts and I'm guessing they listened to the record. But again, like there's lots of stuff in the show that's not on the record. Yeah. So. I mean, I was really touched that they that somebody sat down and like learned this piece. It's, it's a lot of work. So wow. really good on them, though. You know, that- <laughs> my official my official line is, of course, like, "Well, you can't do that." But I was really just like excited that somebody had done it. But also, like royalties and permissions, and <laughs> yeah, you know, there is there is that, of course, and yeah. which is why I can't condone. Uh, yeah, I I can't I can't allow that to happen. You know, we need to go through official channels, but yes, and translations. Yeah. Like there, there's that's a very tricky art too. Uh, translating from English to to any language, uh, back and forth. There's there are, you know, words are important, as you know. I, I uh huh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just something that you're a passing interest. What would you say to other performers who are hesitant about filming or streaming their work? Performers what or writers? I, performers are, I mean, it's the new frontier. It's like songwriters who are hesitant to release their music digitally. Like you, Releasing music digitally is an incredible opportunity. Releasing stories digitally is an incredible opportunity. Now, granted, uh, a live performance is a very different thing than a streamed piece. And I'm, I, th- I do think of the filmed version of The Lion that's on Broadway HD as in part as archival. Uh, but that didn't stop me from wanting it to be done. I wanted it to be done well. I wanted it to be mixed well and edited well, and I wanted it to look good and sound good and feel good. Uh, I don't think of it as a substitute, but I, I think, especially given the last, uh, the last year and a half when live theater hasn't been available, to have at our fingertips the opportunity to, when we can't go out to the theater, to, to see and hear pieces uh, it, it's it's incredibly valuable. Again, it's it's not it's not an or. It's an and. It's not a zero sum game. You know, I don't. There, there's not a lot of downside. Just do it well. You know, do it well. For future work, would would you film it the way that the lion was filmed again, like with an audience and various cameras? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to imagine. You know, it's hard to answer that without knowing what the piece is, where the piece is staged, how it's staged, what it looks like. I, I yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We shall see. I'll keep you updated. As someone living in New York and not in London, <laughs> I, I humbly request <laughs> that future right, productions yeah. be filmed. <laughs> well, sure. I see we're running a little short on time here. Um, I have a few quick questions that I ask all my guests. You don't need to think about it too much. Whatever comes to mind is good. There are no wrong answers. What is your favorite musical? Guys and Dolls. What is your favorite filmed live musical? Hamilton. Oh, good choice. 
You mentioned that uh, a filmed piece of theater is not exactly theater, but it's not quite a film either. So what should we call it? I don't know the answer to that yet. <laughs> Me either. It's like my the bane of my existence. <laughs> Where do you stand on bootlegs? Well, as I mentioned earlier, somebody did a bootleg version of my show, The Lion, and uh, artist me was really, really proud that somebody liked my work enough to do it. Uh, me, who's got a wife and a kid and a dog and needs to pay the bills, is like, come on, guys, Like, please don't steal my work. It's harder to pay the bills if you steal all my work. So uh, I understand both sides. Mm-hmm. What theater do you wish had been filmed? Oh, the I mean, the original version of Guys and Dolls uh, on on Broadway would have been really, really cool. Um, some Shakespeare would have been really cool to see on film. I mean, you know, literally everything that wasn't filmed, I would like for it to be filmed. <laughs> so really, guys, if you're doing a show, film, 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 which does raise an interesting question of no cell phones in the theater. Is that really the way we want to proceed always, all the time? It's, it's, it's worth asking the question because a lot of the time the answer is, yeah, no cell phones in theater. But sometimes the answer might not be no. So mm-hmm. keep, keep it in mind, theater makers. Yes. I, like you said, the past year has been a big shift in the industry of you know, um, accepting filmed theater as, a, as an alternative, as an and. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's lots of in- very interesting conversations to be had. Um, with that in mind, what would you like to see filmed in the future? Well, I'm working on a new piece of musical theater that I'm writing the songs for, and Rick Ellis is writing the book for, and it's a show about Peter Mark Roger, the guy who made Roger's thesaurus. Uh, he was a British scientist in the 19th century and he was friends and rivals with charles darwin and as roger was writing the thesaurus which was his organization of the world charles darwin was writing the origin of species which was his organization of the world and it's really a piece about how do we find meaning and uh, the show is slated to premiere at the williamstown theater festival in massachusetts Mm -hmm. and i would love for this piece whenever it is finished to be filmed so i can share it with folks who aren't able to make it to the theater Oh, that would be fantastic. I loved this year Williamstown Theatre Festival, or last year rather because of the pandemic, pivoted their whole season to um, Audible. And so there was the new musical Row um, about the first woman to row across the Atlantic solo. Uh, and it was turned into an um, an audio musical. It was all done, um, uh, what's the word? Like uh, Like an audio play. And which is a really, which does ask the question and brings us back to what we were speaking to earlier, uh, learning from what makes a really compelling record. Ultimately, an audio play is a piece of recorded media and a record is a piece of recorded media. So can a record and an audio play ultimately be the same thing? Yeah, really fascinating. Those blurred lines and theater, theater can be everywhere and on many mediums, not just on a stage in a building. Yeah, that, oh, absolutely. Very exciting. Where can we find you online, Benjamin? Online, you can find me at benjaminshoyer.com on Instagram, at benjaminshoyer, on Twitter, at benjaminshoyer. And my last name is S C H E U E R. On benjaminshoyer.com, you can find all of my music videos, including my most recent song, Empty Stage 
uh, which I made a film in collaboration with the world-famous ballet dancer Carlos Acosta and the Birmingham Royal Ballet. And then a second video for the very same song with the Tony Award-winning American ballet dancer Robbie Fairchild. That with both of which are absolutely beautiful. And I'm, I'm sorry we ran out of time to talk about them today because they're new pieces of art that are just gorgeous. So I will have uh, links to those in the show notes. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show, Louisa. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Likewise. Thank you so much. Filmed Live Musicals is a labor of love, and we'd like to thank everyone who makes it possible. Thank you to our patrons, Josh Brandon, Mercedes Esteban, Rachel Esteban, James T. Lane, David Negrin, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Al Monaco, David and Catherine Rabinowitz, and Beck Twist for your support. If you'd like to support Filmed Live Musicals, please like and review on your podcast app. Find us on Twitter at Musicals on Screen and on Facebook at Filmed Live Musicals. If you'd like to support the site financially, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash musicals on screen. No matter what level you're able to pledge, you receive early access to written content and early access to this very podcast. Visit www.filmedlivemusicals.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. <laughs>